is Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov. I'd like to welcome you all here again today uh, to this third presentation in this series, End Time, Loyalty and Love. I want to also welcome those who are watching from wherever you may be watching around the world or listening. Uh, very warm welcome to you and I pray that you too will be blessed as we journey uh, through this six-part series together. We're halfway through. Part three, if you've missed a couple, you can catch up on that and uh, we'll look forward to the next three episodes after this. Today's message I've entitled History's Holy Hoax. Now, when you take a look at the definition, the definition of hoax is this, according to the dictionary.com. A hoax is a deliberately fabricated falsehood made to masquerade as truth. Something intended to deceive or defraud. Now, from a very early age, I wasn't even into my teens, I discovered the reality of what it's like to be taken in by a hoax, to be defrauded. I don't know if anyone here has been defrauded or ripped off. Anyone here been ripped off in the past? Okay, a couple of you have. Let me share with you a story, true story. This is a picture here of... Uh, me on, on the left and with my sister, uh, that's Rachel. And on the other side is a picture with my mother and uh, myself, Rachel, and my littlest sister, Lydia. She's holding the ball. They're hanging onto that ball and uh, we are there next to our beloved blue Kingswood with no power steering. I'm telling you, it was a good workout driving that car. <laughs> Not that I drove it much because I'm here today. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here if I did much driving back then. Anyway, I remember, I remember the day when this lady that we couldn't wait for her to visit our home turned up. The lady's name, I cannot remember. I just remember what she brought. She brought with her chocolates. Chocolates. She worked in a chocolate and lolly factory. Now, that was just something that we so looked forward to as kids because my parents were into healthy eating and they didn't buy us any chocolates, any lollies, no ice cream, no chips. It was just healthy food. While all the kids had chips in their lunchbox and Snickers bars and Mars bars, guess what I had? I had boxes of sultanas. Yay! Very exciting. <laughs> and so anyway, and I remember this one day, this lady, she brought us a box of roses chocolates. And um, I was just so excited. My sisters were excited. We all got a box each. And we were just thrilled. I mean, this lady was the best thing ever. She was our favorite friend. We look forward to her coming more than anything else in the world. Anyway, here we are with our box of roses chocolates. And my sisters, guess what they did? They hoed through them immediately. You know, before you could blink, those chocolates were gone. And I told them, I warned them. I said, look, who knows when the Good Samaritan's going to come back again? we got no idea when this lady's coming back again. Save some for tomorrow and the next day and so on and so forth. But no, they didn't want to listen to me. And so they ate all their chocolates. Well, me, what did I do? I ate a few. Absolutely. However, I decided that I needed to keep the rest for another day and sparingly enjoy them over a longer period of time. But I knew that if my sisters found my chocolates, it would be all over. So I had to hide my chocolates and I hid my chocolates. I hid my chocolates in my bedroom so, so well that I forgot where I hid them. 
I couldn't remember where I hid them. <laughs> and anyway, I forgot about the chocolates. And one day, one day, as I'm just rummaging through my bedroom, all of a sudden, guess what I come across? I come across my chocolates, my beloved Rose's chocolates. And I sit down on the bed and I'm just ready to, ready to rip into these chocolates. I mean, there's just saliva just pouring everywhere. Not that you wanted to hear that, but I'm just sitting there and, and, and I'm just ready. And I open up the box and they're all there. My sisters haven't found the chocolates. Praise the Lord. I am just so excited. And I'm about to hoe into them and I'm just so excited. Shut the door, make sure my sisters are nowhere in case I don't want, to, I don't want this special moment ruined by them. And anyway, so away I go. I unwrap the first chocolate and I'm so excited. I'm ready. Horror. Absolute horror. It's not a chocolate. It's a rock. I'm like, have mercy. Wait until I catch up with Cadbury's. I'm like, they're going to give me a year's supply of chocolate for this terrible, terrible mistake that they've made. So anyway, I open up the second one. Guess what? Another rock. I was starting to get a bit suspicious, but I thought, let's give it one more go. One more go. True story. I opened up the third wrapping. You guessed it. Another rock. Someone had found my chocolates and it wasn't my mum or my dad or the cat. It was my sisters. They'd found the chocolates. They'd, they'd polished them all off and put rocks in every single wrapper, every single one to the last one. Hoax, taken in by a hoax, deceived. My life has never been the same. I've been to many counsellors and they can't help me, they say. They've never dealt with anything like this before. No, that's not, that's not part of the true story. <laughs> but you know what? You know, we've all been taken in um, by, by a fraud, by a hoax. We've been deceived. But today we want to talk about something far more important far more critical than a box of roses, chocolates. Today, we want to take a look at the blessings that God has given to the human race at the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden and how the enemy has done his utmost to try and take away that blessing from us. We've discovered thus far that in the beginning of time, God created two blessed institutions to remain with the human race for all of time. One of them being marriage, and we thank God for marriage and the family. Amen? Absolutely. We looked at that in our previous presentation. And the second one is the seventh day Sabbath that God gave to Adam and Eve and to their children for the rest of human history. Now, when it comes to, when it comes to these two beautiful gifts, we've discovered that God placed these two gifts from the Garden of Eden in the heart of His Ten Commandment law. You remember that from that last presentation? The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. The fifth commandment, honor thy mother and thy father. Two commandments that are very different in how they begin to all the other commandments, specifically so that God could get through the message of these two wonderful blessings that the enemy has tried to destroy. We discovered also that all the way in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, the Sabbath from when God gave it at creation remains all the way through to the very end of time. We, we unpacked this in our previous presentation. We don't have time to do that 
on this occasion. But we discovered in the beginning, God created the Sabbath when he gave it to Adam and Eve at Mount Sinai. God commanded it through the Ten Commandments that he wrote with his own with his own finger, with his own hand. In his life, Jesus worshipped on it. In his death, Jesus continued to observe it. The New Testament church continued to observe it. God's last day people will keep it according to the book of Revelation. And we discovered that from one Sabbath to another, according to Isaiah chapter 66, verses 22 and 23, all flesh will come and worship God on the earth made new. So from creation to recreation, God's blessed Sabbath will remain for all of eternity. That is what the Bible teaches. So today we want to take a look at from the Bible and from the pages of history, how this has all changed. Because there is an enemy who wants to defraud the human race of the blessings that God has for humanity. Those two blessings from the garden being marriage and the family and the Sabbath that work hand in hand to create happiness, joy, peace and prosperity for all. Does the enemy want us to enjoy all that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So we need to find the truth. I've come here to find out the truth. What about you? Have you come to find the truth? You want to know the truth? Well, today, by God's grace, we will see the words of Jesus fulfilled where he said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So let's pause and pray before we indeed abide in God's word to seek for his truth. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we thank you that in your word, we have clarity of what your will is for us and for the entire human race, that we may indeed enjoy the blessings of peace, happiness and joy that you have for us. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to begin by going to John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus here outlines his plan for us as well as the enemy's plan for us. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal, kill and destroy. And who do you think the thief might be? That's the devil, of course. That's the devil, whose name is evil with a capital D. That's why he's called the devil. That's all he's interested in. Evil for you and I. And Jesus goes on, But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more what? More abundantly. So God's plan for you and I is that we may have life and have it more abundantly, whereas the enemy... He wants to take away that abundant life. He wants to steal, kill and destroy the plans that God has to bless each and every one of us. When it comes to worship, we discover that the central issue in the entire Bible, in fact, is worship. Worship is not about a day, but it's about allegiance and loyalty to our creator, to our savior and to the one that sustains us. And that is Jesus Christ. The very first murder in the Bible was over worship when Cain killed his brother Abel. Satan has always wanted worship because worship belongs to God alone. You see, the word worship, it, it, it means worship. Who is worthy to be worshipped? Who is worthy to receive our loyalty, our honour? And the only one who is worthy is the one who created us. And that is who? 
that is God. He alone is worthy to be worshipped. But the enemy wants to take away from the worship that belongs to God for himself. And so the very first murder in the Bible was over worship, true and false worship. The central issue in the book of Revelation at the end of time is over worship. That word worship appears over and over and over again. It's about who will you give your end time loyalty and allegiance to? Will it be God or will it be the enemy? They are one of two choices that each person will need to make. Jesus alone deserves to be worshipped for he alone is our creator and he alone is our redeemer. He alone deserves to be worshipped. So the question is, if the Sabbath from Genesis to Revelation, where on earth did Sunday worship come from? If it's all the way through the Bible, where on earth did Sunday worship come from? Well, the truth is, as we'll discover in this presentation and in all other subjects, especially relating to those significant fundamental truths in God's word, for every truth that God has, the enemy has a counterfeit. That's just how it works. For every truth that God has, the enemy has a counterfeit to take away the blessings that God has for each and every one of us. So we're going to find out from the Bible. We're going to find out what God's plan is. And we're going to find out from history where the changes took place. I want to begin by sharing with you just an overall, uh, an overall description of the significance of the sun and sun worship when it comes to the cultures of the past. Throughout history, many ancient cultures worship the sun. Light and heat were essential elements to cultures dependent on agriculture. Therefore, the great force of the sun became the object of their worship. Sadly, on many occasions, the Old Testament records that the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel, chose to worship the sun God rather than the son of God. Often the religious leaders were responsible for leading the people in the pagan practice of sun worship. And we have an example of that in Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 16, where the religious leaders are leading out in the worship of the sun god, which was the predominant god of the then known world when, when Israel lived um, at that time. So he brought me into the inner courts of the Lord's house. Uh, we, we read in Ezekiel chapter 8 verse 16, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshipping the sun toward the east. So even though God had warned his people over and over again, do not follow the worship practices of the nations that surround you. And the nations that surrounded Israel Worship the sun god. That was their predominant god based on what I've just shared regarding the whole, the whole uh, necessary uh, force of the sun for their agriculture and so on and so forth. God says, don't worship the sun god. But we find here in Ezekiel that God's people, in fact, God's leaders, God's very leaders in the temple, in the church, they have their backs towards the temple and their faces towards the east and they're worshipping the sun god as the other pagan nations. So sadly, sun worship crept into 
God's people and amongst God's people right there at the very beginning of time, way back in Old Testament times. Notice what we read in the faith of our fathers. Um, this is written uh, a history of, 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 of the Christian church by James Cardinal Gibbons, who, who is passed away. He wrote this epic um, on, on, on church history. And notice what he had to say regarding the day of worship and, and what the Bible has to say regarding the true day of the worship. Reading his words from Faith of Our Fathers, page 561, Cardinal James Gibbons, um, a prominent uh, Catholic theologian. This is what he wrote. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. He goes on. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. So as far as James Cardinal Gibbons is concerned, he's a a well-known, well-respected Church of Rome historian. He states what the facts are. And the facts are that you can read through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find one single scripture there authorizing the change of the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. In the Old Testament, the, the first day is mentioned on, on one occasion, and that's in Genesis 1, when God on the very first day um, created light. And in the New Testament, there are eight references to the first day of the week. Five, directly in relation to the resurrection of Jesus, who was raised um, on the first day of the week, and three others there in the New Testament. One in John, uh, another one in Acts, and another one in Corinthians. Don't have time to look at those passages. You can do that in your own time. But neither one of those eight passages speak of any change taking place, either in the time of Christ or in the time of his disciples. So, What we need to ask is, what was going on during the time of Christ? What was going on during the time of the early church? What does the Bible say? And so this is a little bit of recap from what we have already looked at in our previous presentation. Notice what we read in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. That's speaking of Christ. Now notice... What we read next, we read regarding the Apostle Paul. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. We go on. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. That's in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 and 44. So here we have testimony and the evidence from the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, he not only went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and ministered to the Jews and preached to the Jews and shared with them, but he also shared with the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were not Jews, but he shared with them also on the seventh day Sabbath as the scriptures share. When it comes to Jesus, Jesus made it very clear that 40 years after he would go to heaven, the Sabbath would remain. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20. 
what he shared with his disciples and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, this is in relation to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus warned that Jerusalem would be destroyed. The temple would be destroyed. Not one stone would be left upon another in the words of Jesus. And Jesus said that when it comes time to flee, and Jesus had given, he'd given warnings and he had given an escape plan for those who were interested in following his instructions. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 24. And he said, when the time comes to flee, when the, when the doors are open and, 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 and there's a reprieve and there's an opportunity, the door is opened. Make sure you don't flee during winter for obvious reasons or on the Sabbath day. This is 70 A.D well and truly down the track from when Jesus was here and well and truly into the New Testament period. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 4 and 9, we discover the Apostle Paul writes, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. So the New Testament is very clear. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. The Sabbath remains for all of God's people, all the way down through time, all the way from the time of Christ to the second coming, and as we've discovered, and beyond. I find it fascinating that the word for Saturday in many languages of the Bible literally is translated as Sabbath. Here we go. I have, I have just a few here, a few examples of how in over 100 modern and ancient languages of the world, the root word for Saturday is Sabbath. Notice these. In German, uh, the word for Saturday is Samstag, which means Sabbath day. In French, Samedi, or Sabbath day also. In Spanish, Sabado, which means Sabbath. Italian, Sabato, Sabbath. Macedonian, the language that I grew up with, Sabota or Sabbath, Serbo-Croatian, Subota, which also means Sabbath, Arabic, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sudanese, Sabtu, Maltese, Isibit, Latin, Sabatum, Czech, Sobota, Gregorian, Sabati, Greek, Savato, Armenian, Shabbat, and Russian, Subota. So can you see the word for Saturday comes to us in all these different languages from that very word Sabbath. It's continued on. Now, in English, the word for Saturday is not Sabbath that we generally use. It's Saturday, of course. And that comes to us from the Roman uh, God systems that, that worship different gods on different days of the week. And so Saturday comes from Saturn. Saturn's day. And Sunday is, of course, the day of the sun. Monday is the day of the moon and so on and so forth. And you can go through all the days of the work that are based on on the planetary gods um, that the Romans had that we have inherited um, for our English names of the days of the week. Now, the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday has been changed. That is obvious. And most Christians today um, worship on the first day of the week, on Sunday. So the question that begs to be asked and we need to answer is how and when 
did the change take place? How and when did the change take place? Now, that's a very important question. Now, why is this question very important? Because this question has everything to do with worship. What is the key issue in the entire Bible? Worship, allegiance, loyalty. There is nothing more important than worship. God created Adam and Eve in his image for them to have fellowship with him, for them to be in union with him, for them ultimately to worship him as their Lord and as their God and as their creator. This is so significant and so important in that we know from the very beginning of time, as we read through Revelation, as we read through the Bible, as we read through the book of Isaiah, as we read through the book of Ezekiel, we discover that the enemy, Satan, who was once called Lucifer, who was God's leading angel, he rebelled and formed a rebellion around him of one third of the angels because he wanted to be worshipped. In Isaiah chapter 14, we don't have time to go there. But in Isaiah chapter 14, he cries out, I will be like the Most High. I will be worshipped like the Most High. And God alone deserves to be worshipped. No one else. God alone. And so this is a significant issue. And so I wanted to know the answer to this question. How and when did the change take place? I wasn't interested in hearing from others. So I decided to do my own research. About 20 years ago or so, I spent three months researching this very subject. I wanted to find out the truth. And so I came across this book here that I have up there on the screen for you. Book written by Samuel Bakioki. In fact, it's his doctoral dissertation and it's entitled From From Sabbath to Sunday. Subtitle, A Historical Investigation of the Rise of Sunday Observance in Early Christianity. Now, this book by Samuel Bakioki, as I pointed out, it's his doctoral dissertation. It was uh, printed there, as you can see, at the Pontifical Gregorian University Press back in 1977. That's in the city of Rome. Uh, Dr. Bakioki has passed away um, a few years ago. However, this would have to be the leading historical document that we have on this subject in order to answer this question. This is such a significant piece of work that it received the highest award and honor by the Church of Rome for for the historical accuracy. You see, Dr. Bakioki, he was one of the first, if not the very first, not quite sure about that, but he was one of the first Protestants to study and get his doctorate from from the from the Pontifical Gregorian University there in Rome itself. And so he studied these original sources in order to discover the truth of how the change took place from Saturday or from the Sabbath to Sunday. Notice these words um, written by Vincenzo Moncianino. I'll probably hash that name. But anyway, he's the chairman of the church history department, Pontifical Gregorian University. Notice what he had to say regarding this work of Dr. Bakioki. It is a work that recommends itself because of its rich content, the rigorous scientific method and the vast horizon with which it has been conceived and executed. Notice this uh, 
introduction to the book. The investigation shows, and I'm reading from the book, from the introduction, the adoption of Sunday in place of the Sabbath did not occur in the primitive church of Jerusalem by virtue of apostolic authority, but approximately a century later in the church of Rome. An interplay of Jewish, pagan and Christian factors contributed to the abandonment of the Sabbath and adoption of Sunday observance instead. So that is what took place. It was a gradual change. The change of the Sabbath took place gradually. And that's what you can read in this document and other documents. So as I read through this book and as I read through many other books, I discovered that there were probably three significant reasons why and how the change took place. And I want to share with you a summary from Dr. Bakayoki, who probably has summarized it better than, than most I've come across. And here they are. Here are the three, here are the three key points. There was anti-Judaism. During the second century, Christians developed a theology of separation from and contempt toward the Jews. Now, why is that? Well, you see, what is going on is that the Jews were getting themselves into a lot of trouble from the Romans. Uh, You can read about that in your history books. There were all sorts of uprisings. And so the the Romans were giving the, the Jews a good old pounding. And guess who got caught up in the crossfire? The Christians, because they both worshipped on the same day of the week. Both the Christians and the Jews worshipped on the seventh day Sabbath. So they wanted to distinguish themselves from their Jewish friends and neighbours. And so they began to, to keep Sunday as well, not as a holy day, H-O-L-Y, but as a holiday, H-O-L-I-D-A-Y. And so it was day of festivity, but it distinguished them from their Jewish neighbours. Number two, sun worship. The pagan Romans worshipped the sun as their chief god. The Christians, in order to befriend the pagans, began to adopt the symbol of the sun and Sunday as a replacement day of worship by reasoning that God created light and Jesus was raised on the first day. So that was their reasoning. And so they began to to slowly but surely change their day of worship in order to try and win and attract the Romans. And the Romans, they worshipped the sun god. And the one who especially made sun worship or Sunday worship um, very popular was the first Roman emperor to become a Christian. And that was Constantine. In the year 321 AD, Constantine, he, he proclaimed the first national Sunday law where he... He, he mandated that all within his empire would worship on the day of the sun in order to, to bring about a union between the pagans and the Christians. That so was a political move on his part. But that was the second reason. Now, the third reason is this. The church at Rome, the most powerful church in the Roman Empire, encouraged Sunday worship rather than Saturday worship. The Sabbath became a day of fasting and Sunday became a day of Feasting, that's according to Dr. Bekioki and his research. So how excited would you be as a little boy or a little girl during the time when this all took place regarding the Sabbath? It was a day of fasting and Sunday was the day of feasting. So slowly but surely over time, things changed. And from the seventh day Sabbath to the first day of the week, 
But as you go through history and you read through the history books, especially there in Africa, um, you discover that Sabbath keeping remained all the way from the time of Christ all the way through to today. There have been Sabbath keepers, seventh day Sabbath keepers, not many of them at different times, but they have been scattered here and there that have remained true to God and to his word. When it comes to this question, I also decided that I needed to get hold of uh, Converts Catechism, which I did. So I got hold of this Converts Catechism. And in this uh, Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, uh, it's question and answer. And notice what we find here. Here we have these words. The question, which is the Sabbath day? The answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Another question. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? And the answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. So that is what the church itself says, that it is responsible for changing the day of worship as far as Christians are concerned, from Saturday to Sunday. Yes, there were these other factors involved, as I've already put up there on the screen for you. However, the, the key reason, the key reason today why not only uh, Roman Catholic Christians, but Christians of all various persuasions keep holy or worship on the first day of the week is due to this change that was made by the Church of Rome, who openly admits that that is what took place. Now, did this catch God by surprise? Was God caught by surprise when this took place, when this incredible change took place? No. Notice what we read in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, two and a half thousand years ago, almost 1,000 years before the change took place, God predicted through his servant Daniel that a power would arise that would intend to change God's times and his law. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. We have played out in history what God said would take place. This power that would attempt to change God's holy time and God's holy law. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul speaks on this in his day. And this is what he writes. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he writes, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the second coming, will not come unless the falling away comes first. Uh, the word there, falling away, in the original is the word apostasia. It's where we get our English word apostasy from. Or, or people who apostatize, they fall away from Bible truth. That's what it means to apostatize. We keep reading. And the man of sin is revealed, speaking of this power, that would seek to change God's times and laws. The son of perdition, here is another reference to this power, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. There is that word, that key word. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the enemy would use a power. And that is how the enemy has always operated. Satan has never come out in the open and done his dirty, deceiving work in the open. He didn't do that with Adam and Eve. He deceived Eve through what means and through what avenue? Through the serpent. Isn't that right? He used the serpent as a medium. 
The angels were deceived. One third of the angels were deceived through his lies, through his deception. And he deceives you and I today. He seeks to deceive you and I today, I should say. I pray that we will not be deceived. If we remain in God's word, we will never be deceived. But he seeks to deceive us in the same way through his counterfeit. Now, the enemy is seeking that which belongs to God and God alone. And that is worship. There is a power that the enemy uses as his front man in order to receive worship. And that is any and every institution, not just the Church of Rome, but any and every institution that seeks to substitute the clear word of God, that seeks to change the clear commandments of God and instead place the traditions or the suppositions or the inventions of man. Now, on this point, I have this uh, historical um, document. I have these quotes from a number of the churches, authoritative quotations on the Sabbath and Sunday. So it's not just the Church of Rome that is um, admitting to this change and to what day is the true Sabbath day and the significance of that, but many other churches. I'll just put up a couple up there where leaders, leaders of the various Christian churches share. Here is one from the Anglican Manual of Christian Doctrine, page 127. The question, is there any command in the New Testament to change the day of weekly rest from Saturday to Sunday? And the answer is none. Here is another one. This time, Dr. Edward T. Hiscox, he is the author of the Baptist Manual, and this is what he writes on the subject. There was and is a commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath day was not Sunday. It will be said, however, and with some show of triumph, that the Sabbath was transferred from the seventh to the first day of the week. He goes on. Where can the record of such a transaction be found? Not in the New Testament. Absolutely not. There is no scriptural evidence of the change of the Sabbath institution from the seventh to the first day of the week. So here we have these leading church authorities who know their Bibles better than you, better than me, probably better than most people. And they have read the Bible. They have read the Bible from cover to cover and they have discovered the truth that there has been no change and that the Sabbath day remains as the seventh day of the week. This is a very interesting, this is a very interesting, um, uh, I guess, document that was put out um, probably more than a century ago now. Rome's challenge. Why do Protestants keep Sunday? And in these four articles uh, that were written um, by the Church of Rome, addressing the question of why do Protestants keep Sunday, they ask the million dollar question. And this is it. If Protestants believe and teach that they stand on the Bible and the Bible alone, on sola scriptura, and that they believe in God's Ten Commandments, then why do Protestants keep Sunday as their day of worship rather than Saturday? as their day of worship, according to what the scriptures teach. Isn't that a good question? That's a very good question. The Church of Rome rightly says, 
we change the day of worship. Therefore, we are allowed to worship on this day and we don't claim to go by sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. But you Protestants do. You Protestants claim that you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yet in this all important matter that deals with one of the very commandments of God, with the commandment that begins with the word remember, you choose to willfully and conveniently forget. And so that is the challenge. And it's a very, very good challenge. And I take my hat off and I respect the Church of Rome for being honest and upfront. But I don't have respect for those that try and come up with all sorts of weird and wonderful reasons that are not in Scripture of why they can neglect the Word of God in such an important matter as worship and the keeping of God's fourth commandment. I just don't understand. And there's just no excuse for others to follow in that way. Martin Luther Martin Luther challenged the Church of Rome in 1517, October 31, 1517. Martin Luther, uh, a Church of Rome, theologian and, and highly respected monk, one who was absolutely loyal to his church, finally realized that his church in many important areas, had strayed away from God's truth, from His Word. And he wanted to follow the Bible and the Bible alone. And so Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or 95 reasons, 95 disputes with the church regarding indulgences, regarding how you and I are saved. And he nailed that on the Wittenberg church door. Martin Luther called his beloved Church of Rome back to the Scriptures, back to the Word of God, back to, back, to, back to the commandments of God. And so we have Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who challenged the Church of Rome, his church, his beloved church, to stand on sola scriptura. Stand on sola scriptura. And so the church... Almost, um, yeah, just over three, uh, just over 20 years from that, uh, from that point in time, almost three decades, I should say, from, from 1517, almost three decades on, the Church of Rome um, conducted what is known as the Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563, 18 years 25 sessions, probably one of the, if not the most important council of the Church of Rome. And at this council, the church had two major items that it discussed during that 18 year period. The two main objectives of the church council were number one, to condemn the principles and doctrines of the Protestant Reformation or Protestantism. And secondly, to clarify the doctrines of the Catholic Church on all disputed points. Martin Luther had, had raised a significant issue and it had created absolute turmoil within the church. One of the key issues that was discussed and debated as these two significant points were addressed during this 18-year period was whether the church 
would go with tradition or whether the church would go with the Bible. Was it possible for the church to have both the tradition in one hand and God's truth in the other? Was that even possible? There was a lot of toing and froing. And finally, the church decided that of the two, tradition and truth, of the two, the safest, the more safe course of action was to follow tradition. And why is that? Because there is no way the church could remain the way it was, would remain to teach and practice the way it had been up until this point if it wanted to continue, if it wanted to follow God's truth. It could not remain in that same way. The images and the idols in the churches that were worshipped and revered, they had to go. As well, the day of worship needed to be changed back to the biblical day of worship. And so sadly, the Church of Rome during the Council of Trent made a decision that it would remain with the status quo and would no longer abide by the Bible and the Bible alone as it had claimed, but it would be the Bible and tradition. What did Jesus have to say about tradition? Notice these words. What did Jesus have to say about placing tradition above God's truth? What did Jesus have to say? Let's go to his words in Mark Chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Jesus addresses this very topic and he says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's speaking here to the religious leaders. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of man. Nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. Sadly, in the days of Christ, traditions were followed more than God's truth. If you take a look at the context of these words that we read there in Mark chapter 7, you'll discover that Jesus here is addressing, amongst a number of other points, the issue of honoring your mother and your father. You see, the religious leaders had come up with a tradition whereby you could dishonor your mother and your father, live a selfish life, and still be seen and classed as honorable amongst your religious community. All you needed to do was pledge all of your belongings, all of your treasures to the church after you died, and you did not need to take care of your parents while they were still alive. Yet the Bible says, honor your mother and your father. But they had taken that commandment, thrown it out the window, come up with their own commandment to encourage and invite selfishness and self-centeredness and dishonoring mother and father and not taking care of them in a day and age where there was no center link and there were no pensions, where parents, aged parents relied on their children to support them. And the church of the day, the religious leaders of the day, had thrown out the fifth commandment and instead had come up with their own tradition. And Jesus shares these words, In vain, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of man. 
So today you and I are faced with that same decision that Martin Luther was faced with, that Jesus challenged his religious leaders of his day and the people of his day. Will it be truth or tradition? We must make a choice. Will it be following what God says and keeping his commandments, including the one that begins with the word remember, following God's word? Or will it be keeping the commandments of man and following the traditions of man? Jesus said, he, is not, he who is not with me is against me. We cannot have it both ways. We cannot have a foot in each camp. Jesus says, either you're with me or you're against me. You're either serving me or you're not serving me. You're either worshipping me in spirit and in truth or you're not. We cannot have it both ways. And so Jesus today is inviting you and I, wherever you may be, Jesus is inviting you to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not to ask for a 10% discount, as many Christians have. Every commandment is okay, except for the one that begins with the word remember. I find that hard to understand. Why would God ask us today to forget the commandment that he said to remember? Try that on your wife <laughs> or on your husband. <laughs> Tell them that remember means to forget. <laughs> and to forget means to remember and see how well you do. <laughs> so the question is, what will it be for you? What will it be for me? What will be your foundation? What will be my foundation for my faith, for your faith? Will it be what man says or will it be what God says? For me, I want to have the attitude and the testimony of the Apostle Peter and the disciples. Notice these words from Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey who? God, God rather than who? Man, I respect all people. I respect all people. No matter what their differences may be, to me and how I understand. But when it comes to my loyalty and allegiance, when it comes to who I obey, when it comes to who I follow, I make it very clear. My loyalty today and every day while God gives me breath or until the second coming will be to the Bible and the Bible alone. Amen. Amen. To Sola Scriptura. The Bible and the Bible alone. And I pray that that is where your loyalty will be. Not with what man says, but with what God says in his word. God's final end time message of love. The three angels messages. We've looked at them in the previous two presentations. Uh, they herald this, this cry, this call to the entire world at the end of time that we find in Revelation 14, 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Words, as we have discovered, directly out of God's Ten Commandments, out of the Fourth Commandment, directly from the creation account. Will God have a people at the end of time who worship Him who made heaven and earth, those who are loyal, those who obey, those who love Him with all of their hearts? Notice what we read in Revelation 14 verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Will God have a people who are loyal and love Him with all their hearts at the end of time? Indeed, He will. Indeed, He will.
Will that be the majority? Sadly, the answer is no. I wish I could stand up here today and say the answer is yes. The majority will follow God and will be loyal to Him and will be loyal to His truth rather than the traditions of man. But sadly, the book of Revelation tells us that the majority at the end of time will follow the traditions of man, the lies of the enemy, rather than the truths of God and show their love towards God. What do we find in Revelation 22 verse 14? Here is the reward of those who are loyal those who love God, those who are showing their allegiance to Him in doing what He has called them to do. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. That's God's plan for you. That's God's plan for me. That's God's plan for the entire human race. God so much wants us to enter into that city, the new Jerusalem. But all those who enter there will be those that have chosen because of their love for God to show their loyalty to Him. And there is no greater show of loyalty than obedience. There just isn't. There just isn't. I want to finish off by going back to Martin Luther. Martin Luther in 1521 some four years after he nailed those 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door, found himself on April 18, 1521, before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the Church of Rome at the Diet of Worms there in Germany. Not Worms, but Worms, the city of Worms. This speech that he made not on that first day when he, when he was asked to, to recant his writings, firstly to, to answer whether they were from him. And the second question was, do you recant? He made a powerful speech. I had the opportunity back in 2010 to go to the city of Worms there in Germany. And I stood there at the very place. There's a... Uh, there's a memorial there at the very place where Martin Luther made his stand. And we'll take a look at those words in just a moment. Here I stand. This is the place in 1521 when Martin Luther made his stand, where he sent shockwaves around the world through these words that he uttered. Notice the words from Martin Luther as he was asked, will you recant? Will you turn back? And these were his words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And here are these famous words that have echoed down through history for the past half a millennia. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Powerful words from Martin Luther. Here I stand. On God's word and God's word alone, I can do no other. God is calling you and I today. Jesus is calling you and I today. He's calling us to make a stand. He's saying, my dear friend, 
wherever you may be on this planet, I'm inviting you to make a stand. Follow me. Follow my ways. Follow the plans that I have for you. You may be thinking, I've never heard this message before. I had no idea. What am I supposed to do? Notice what, notice what Peter, sorry, the Apostle Paul shared with his audience in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. God is inviting all everywhere to repent. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus is inviting us to make a new start. He's inviting us to make a change, to follow him as the Lord of the Sabbath. You know what it means to repent? To repent means to do a U-turn. Have you ever had to do a U-turn? You're heading in one direction and you realize, oops, I'm going the wrong way. You do a U-turn, you repent and you head back the right way. That's God's plan for each and every one of you. And I want to pray that each and every one of us make that decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your message of love. And we ask and pray that because of our love for Jesus, we will seek to follow him in spirit and in truth. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Malenkov, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au.